Well, if you would again, uh, let's take out our Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. And we will be starting at verse 20 and then reading through chapter 23, verse 20. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 20. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham... Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Buzz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the brother of Aram, Kased, Hazo, Pildash, Jidpah, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remua, bore Teba, Gama, Tahash in Makkah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn, to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. The full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Melchpah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our Lord remain forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word. We pray, God, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. Um, help us to glean understandings. Help us to uh, know Christ, to see uh, your glory in all that is taking place here. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There is an economic theory which is popular today which suggests that all transactions must necessarily have winners and losers. So when an item is purchased, someone has to come out on top and the other one has to be taken in some fashion. But this is not how transactions should work, nor how the free market works. In any transaction, in a Christian worldview, both parties, in exchange for goods or services, should come out as winners. In fact, as as a Christian, this is how we should pursue any economic transaction. The Christian should not primarily concern themselves with winning, but in seeing both parties being blessed, thus the transaction being mutually beneficial. The Christian should be concerned with the interests of others as well as uh, not only their own interests, but of the interests of others as well. Seeking the good of our fellow image bearers. Now in our text today, we're looking at a financial transaction. The purchase of a field with a cave by Abraham with the purpose of burying his wife. Now, on the surface, this is a fairly mundane affair. In fact, some of you, as we read this, read this, probably thought, what in the world is he going to do with this? <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a purchase. It's a real estate transaction. Abraham wanted to buy the land from the Hittites. He wanted to bury his wife. But there is more going on here. Abraham desired for the transaction to be impeccable. As he purchases property which in the land which his children would inherit. Now how Abraham conducts himself before these unbelievers speaks also to his implicit trust in the Lord. And this, is, uh, this lesson is particularly apropos to our church as we are purchasing our own bit of real estate. We're buying a building. Will Lord willing serve as a permanent home and a gospel beacon in our community? A church building is a place to gather, but it is also a memorial, a symbol, as it were, which signals to the world that this is where the gospel is preached. And so like Abraham, how we conduct ourselves, even in that transaction, is a witness to the world. Now Abraham had a goal. His goal was in providing for his family a permanent burial place, a place to remember the faith of those believers who had come, so the covenant family may own a piece of the land, the land of promise, the land which they would inherit. Abraham was not interested in borrowing a place. He was not interested in any sort of temporary measures. He was interested in an outright purchase. A purchase which was without question. Because his hope and his rest was on the promises of God. And so after we have this climatic conclusion of Abraham uh, uh, in the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, the, ne- the narrative now of Genesis is shifting. Now, in what is now the final act of book six, 
And we come to the transition from the patriarchy of Abraham to that of Isaac, or really, more to the point, the transition to Jacob. The narrative of Abraham, you remember, began all the way back in chapter 11. That was the the Todot. That's where book 6 of Genesis begins. And Abraham was listed among the, the descendants of Terah. Of course, we already know he wasn't the only descendant of Terah. Uh, we had, had already been introduced to Lot, so he's kind of come and gone in the narrative. We also, which, and of course, this is where we learn of the Moabites and the Ammonites coming from Lot. But, but Abraham and his family has been the focus. But now again in chapter 22, we learn something of other family members, namely the children of Nahor. And they're brought into view mainly because of a, of a name which shows up here, that of Rebekah who is, would be Isaac's wife, that and really she is the second mother of Israel. From there, we then learn of the death of Sarah, um, the negotiation for real estate, for burial. And this narrative is continuing to move forward towards Abraham leaving the scene in chapter 25. And then we see this transition to Isaac as the patriarch of the tribe, the father of the nation which is to come, the heir of the covenant promises, and eventually then, of course, to Jacob and to his sons. And so we begin in our study here in chapter 22 in verse 20. And so what's happened is more time has gone on, more time since the preceding events, the sacrifice of Isaac. 20 years have maybe gone by at this point. So we've seen throughout this, there's times where the narrative really slows down, and then then there's just huge amounts of time which go by. And here we return, actually we go uh, all the way back, really to chapter 11, and we go to the genealogical record of the family of Terah. And so just as the sacrifice of Isaac as a test of faith parallels Abraham's call to land as a test of faith, so the genealogy of Nahor echoes the earlier genealogy in chapter 11. So this section, which continues all the way to 25, serves as a bit of an epilogue in the history of Abraham. And this is really this is setting the stage for what is to come after. The report of Abraham's brother's children reminds him, and reminds us too as a reader, of the unfinished work of securing the second generation. Isaac, of course, has been born, right? He's, the, the test has been passed. He's grown up now. The promise to him has been established, has been confirmed. We particularly see this in his near death as a sacrifice, where the ram is provided as a substitute. So it's clear, you know, Isaac is the heir, but there's still a problem. He still has to have children. And in order to have children, in order for him to have sons, he must have a wife. He doesn't have a wife yet. And how he gets a wife, and from whom he has a wife, now begins to come into view. And so Abraham is told that his brother Nahor had eight sons by Milcah. The mothering of these eight sons stands in contrast to Sarah, who has one son, Isaac. And yet this one son was of supernatural provision and of divine grace. And so although these sons of Terah had a slow beginning, the Lord had blessed the family greatly. 
Now, there are a number of names that are mentioned here. We're not going to go into any detail on them. Uh, all, all, many of them can be accounted for in the ancient, other ancient writings as they settled in various parts of the ancient Near East, uh, Arabia particularly. But the focus is, is, is on one particular name, um, Bethuel, who is the father of Rebekah. Now, the statement concerning here comes in sort of a parenthetical way, but it's actually a critically important piece of information. And this is because Rebekah is going to play an important role as the narrative continues to unfold. Now, there are other sons mentioned uh, from Nahor's concubines. Uh, this brings to mind Abraham's son by Hagar. Uh, also, Jacob's concubines, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, Zilpah who, who also contribute to the households of the patriarchs. In the case of th- these two, uh, they have sons which share in the covenant promises. And so the, the importance of this next generation now has sort of come into view, and it becomes even more acute with the announcement of the death of Sarah. She's the, she was the mother, as it were, of the nation. Sarah, we read, we read, had lived 127 years, and she died at Kiriath Arba, which later will be known as Hebron. Her death and burial become yet another transition event as, as the narrative is going to start focusing on Isaac and then also Rebekah. So her, her dying uh, so is setting the stage for us too that you know eventually Abraham's going to die also. Isaac has yet to take a wife, so that second generation still you know there's still work to be done. Okay. Now Sarah, we, we see she lived a very long and full life, 127 years is a long time. The chronological note indicates that this was 37 years since the birth of Isaac. Abraham was roughly 137 years old. In addition to that, it's been 62 years since Abraham and Sarah had entered into the land. And so you have a a general idea of how much time has now gone by. Now we read, too, that Abraham mourned for Sarah and wept for her. And he would have done this in the customary way. Uh, Typically, mourning rites in the ancient Near East and in the scriptures included loud weeping, the tearing of clothes, uh, sitting in, in, uh, in dirt or an ash heap, wearing sackcloth, shaving your head. And the text describes Abraham's audible cries as he goes in to mourn for his wife. So he likely was sitting over uh, the, the body of his wife, uh, just weeping uh, loudly where others could hear. And then after an appropriate period of mourning and weeping, we read that Abraham rose to go and to bury his dead wife. Now the problem we see though is that he doesn't own any land. He's a sojourner. He's a foreigner. He doesn't have any place to bury his wife. And so what Abraham desired was to have a family tomb. A place in which to bury the dead of the covenant family. A place which would stand as a testimony of of their inheritance in the land and of the faith in the one true and covenant-keeping God. This tomb needed to be owned by Abraham and his offspring. And so we read uh, that he went and spoke to the Hittites who controlled that portion. Look what he says in verse 4. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. 
Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Well, notice that Abraham comes to the Hittites and he comes with a humble posture. He calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. He says, I have no land of my own. I don't even have land to bury my dead. What he's asking of the Hittites may have been an unusual request for an outsider. You know, being a sojourner, a foreigner, um, he was no threat to them, but typically the sharing of land was dependent upon intermarriage. And the tribes would intermarry and thus they would share land. But that, that hasn't happened here, nor will it happen, or should it happen. And so there must be negotiations with them over the purchase of a piece of land and this cave. Now the Hittite response tells us something of the respect that they had for Abraham. Look at their response. It says, you are a prince of God among, among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. When the Hittites recognized, like the other nations of the time, that God had a special relationship with Abraham. And similar, similar to the Philistines, uh, the Hittites had great respect for Abraham, saw God's protection on him, even as he was a resident alien among them. They call him a prince of God among them. Abraham had put himself at the bottom of the social ladder, one commentator said, and they had put him back on the top. So they call him a prince. They say, look, any, any, any one of us will give us the best that we have. We'll, we'll happily let you use anything that we have. So since Abraham, Abraham was essentially one of them, though he was not intermarried with them, they were not of the same people. They were not of the same family, but they respected him. And they offered him the choicest of tombs for his wife. They say, none of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And so they're willing, they will willingly and freely give use of their land. Now notice, though, the change of terminology uh, from property for burial to tomb. What this may indicate to us is that although they were willing to allow the Prince of God to bury his dead on their land, they were reluctant to give him permanent ownership of it. I mean, which is, look, Abraham, we'll, we'll gladly give you use of our land. We're not going to necessarily give you the land or sell you the land. Abraham then rose bowed himself to the Hittites again. Again, you can see he's taking a position of humility, a posture of humility. And he moves then to his specific request. And this is, by the way, the only time Abraham ever bows himself to any of the inhabitants of Canaan. This is the only time he ever does this. But Abraham's request is singular. We desire a particular piece of land. And he desires to purchase that land outright. Verse 8. If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price... Let him give it to me in your presence 
as property for a burial place. So Abraham asks to purchase, and note he says, at full price. He wants to purchase a specific cave and field owned by a man named Ephron. And he asks that the men that are gathered there, that they would intercede on his behalf. Would you go to him, would you go to Ephron, the son of Zohar, and ask him to sell me this very particular parcel of land, this cave of Mechpelah. Now Mechpelah, by the way, means double cave or split cave, which probably indicates this was some sort of a a double-chambered cave. And the mention of Ephron's father, Zohar, that's actually quite rare when you speak about non-Israelite people. It probably means that Zohar was an exceptional man among the Hittites. Abraham, by asking for a peace at the end of the land, was ensuring, too, that the territorial integrity of the Hittites would be maintained. He wasn't asking for the whole thing. He wasn't asking for something in the middle, which would sort of separate land. He wasn't asking for things to be divided up. He was asking for a small slice off to the side, out of the way, at the end of the field, where there's this cave. That's what he was asking for. Abraham was seeking to limit his intrusion on their land, but he was asking to purchase this at full price. And so he's pressing for ownership of that field and cave. He was not willing to simply lease the land. Uh, He didn't want to just borrow the land to bury his wife. He wanted to purchase it outright, and again, at full price. Now, Ephraim's, or I'm sorry, Abraham's offer reflects both his wealth and his good faith in negotiating with Ephraim, who could hardly refuse his generosity. This was to be a win-win for both men in this transaction. This was not to, there was not to be any question in the future about who owned this piece of land. There would be many witnesses. And no one could say that Abraham was not above board in his dealings. No one could claim that somehow he'd robbed Ephraim of the land in some fashion. You know, he, he didn't give him really enough. Um, you know, there, no, nobody really saw this. Nobody, nobody could question in any way this purchase. And the term full price is, is actually quite significant. It signifies the full payment for an irrevocable sale. In the ancient Near East, the Acacian and Sumerian legal code used very similar terms, which indicated a cash sale which was final. The inclusion of this term highlights the irrevocable nature of the transaction which Abraham desired. He would pay the full price for the property so that it could be finalized and complete. His family would own that cave and field. Now evidently, uh, Ephraim was present at that original gathering. Uh, perhaps there was a delegation which had met at the, at the city gates. Or, or maybe they, this delegation went to where his city was and they all met there. Whatever the case may be. Either way, Ephraim now gives an answer to Abraham's request. Sitting among the Hittite witnesses, he said to Abraham, verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of the people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, first of all, you'll know that Ephraim didn't require any social pressure from the others. It's not like the others are like, Hey, hey, you know what? You should just go ahead and sell, sell this guy. 
You know, get, get, you know, give this give this guy your cave. Nobody's doing that. He's freely offering it to him. He's, he's, he's giving of his own freely. His willingness to sell would make Abraham's claim on the property even more incontestable. Nobody was twisting his arm, as it were. But Ephraim's offer to give the land to Abraham could be taken in a couple different ways. On one hand, it could be that he is remarkably generous. Hey, I'll be I'll just here, just take it. Happy to give it to you. It could be that. Or he was engaging in a bargaining ploy. It's also possible. Ephraim, though, politely refuses to be offered to purchase the property. Remember, again, Abraham had offered whatever, whatever you name the price, I'll pay it. I'll pay full price. Ephraim politely refuses that offer, instead offers it as a gift. Notice he mentions give three times in the speech. I will give, I will give you the field. I give you the cave. I give it to you in the sight of my people. Three times he mentions giving. So the gifting of the land was being emphasized. And again, you'll notice there's an acknowledgement of the crowd of witnesses there. In the sight of the people here, I will give this to you. So this is a legally witnessed transaction. Now why does he do this? Why does he offer to give the land? Of course, this is the question. Perhaps in refusing money and giving it to Abraham, Ephraim hoped to gain favor with him and with his fellow Hittites. And Well, viewed in this way, perhaps the luster of his generosity fades a little bit. Other commentators, though, see this not as an offer or not as being generous, but as a a form of haggling. Now, haggling is typically a socially negative experience. Most of us, when we think of haggling, we think of experience at a, with a used car salesman. Maybe that's what comes to your mind. That's generally a very negative experience, right? How many times do you need to go talk to the manager? Can I just talk to him myself? Most people don't want to be haggled, although there are some who seem to enjoy the thrill of negotiating a good deal and getting it over on someone. Maybe you've done that, where you come and you're like, I can't believe I got this guy to do this for me, right? Uh, that's maybe the, uh, the, those who uh, uh, hold to the winners and losers theory of economics. Perhaps in offering the land as a gift, Ephraim was politely announcing his intention to sell the land, although with exaggerated politeness. In Middle Eastern culture, what begins with a language of kinship and friendliness and offers of gifts may quickly turn into ridicule and oaths and scorn if you take it at face value. It's a game. You can't just accept the gift. Kind of like this. What are you, you going to take this gift from me that I have so generously given? You're my friend. We're friends. Are you just going to take it and not give anything in, in re- return? I mean, what kind of friend are you? This is the sort of thing that goes on in this kind of, of negotiation. I thought we had a close kinship. We had a bond. You're just going to take it? Thus, the haggle. When it comes to negotiating in this way, one must be careful not to offer too little in the purchase, or you might be mocked and create an offense. 
For some of you, that sounds, this all sounds very stressful, right? If this was, in fact, a negotiating ploy on the part of Ephraim, he, would, he could not be seen as being benevolent, but he would be self-serving. He was trying to achieve maximum relational capital and maximum income out of the same transaction. Well, this is not clear. We, we, we don't really know what Ephraim's purpose was. Was he being super generous? Was this a ploy? Whatever it may be, Abraham dealt with it marvelously. He averted any negative aspects of the haggle simply by refusing the gift altogether and again offering to make a full price, a full payment uh, for the land. Look again at verse 12. Abraham again bows and in an expression of humility and gratitude before continuing on with the negotiation. To ensure that his family would have a burial spot in the future, he, he preferred to actually and officially purchase this plot and he wished to do so in the hearing of the people. And he said to Ephraim, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the, f- the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham was willing to give whatever price is named for the field. He literally says in Hebrew, it's, I will pay the silver. I will pay the silver. He will not accept the field as a gift. He must purchase it, thus securing his rights in the land. Finally, we see that Ephraim names the price. Verse 15. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. We don't know if this was a fair price. We don't know if Abraham is being overcharged. We know um, in future David will purchase the threshing floor for 50 shekels of silver. So you can judge whether uh, Abraham is being taken to the cleaners on this transaction or not. We don't know what the value of lands were in the ancient world. Uh, The price offered may have been at market value. Nevertheless, the price for the land is couched in language of relationship. Abraham could not refuse such a price. You know, what's 400 shekels of silver between friends, right? It'd be like saying, what's a a couple hundred thousand dollars between friends, right? (laughs) Such a small thing in comparison to a relationship. Ah, what is a piece of land worth, 400 pieces of silver worth between you and me? This is a small thing between friends. Give me the money, take the land, go bury your dead. Now the only parties in this negotiation you'll notice are uh, Abraham and Ephraim. The other witnesses don't uh, say anything. But they're present there, and that's mentioned a few different times in the narrative. As one commentator put it, only a payment that is manifestly accepted by the seller of of his own volition ensures the unchallengeable nature of the transaction. This is why Ephraim and not Abraham must first state the price and why once that is done, there is no further bargaining. You, You notice Abraham doesn't say, well, I will pay you X amount for this piece of land. He says, I will pay full price. You tell me what that price is and I will pay it. No, I'll give it to you. No, you tell me what the price is, the full price, and I will pay it. It's not, it, there was no like, well, you know, 400 shekels of silver. Well, how about if I give you two? There was none of that. Abraham said, okay, that's the price. I'll pay it. 
So it says uh, that they, he weighs out the 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants of that day. And so this transaction is legal and it is final. All the bases are covered. Abraham has an unquestionable ownership of the land. And this is fairly significant. Because here we have a, a sojourner of the land who God has promised will, will, his, his family will inherit the land. We know Abraham will pass off the scene uh, before that happens. But he has now purchased in that land of promise. He has bought a cave at a, at a, uh, a price well beyond a fair price. To not bargain was, too, was contrary to Near Eastern custom. You, you know, you always haggle to try to get a bargain. Abraham doesn't do that. He kind of works against um, the norm, the customary um, way of doing things. His, his, his primary objective wasn't to get a great deal. That wasn't his objective. You know, he, he wasn't going to say, oh, I'm going to try to get some land here. I'm going to get the best price. Like, that wasn't his objective at all. His objective was to secure his rights in a way in which no one could contest. No one could say, well, we were there while you twisted Ephraim's arm. Nobody could say that. Nobody could say, like, well, you didn't really give him enough and we're going we're gonna to give this land back to Ephraim because you, you, you kind of stole it. Nobody could say that. So verse 17, the field of Mechpelah and the cave along with the trees in the area was made over to Abraham. So you'll notice that the, the sort of legal uh, uh, information given about, you know, here, here's, it's kind of like, you know, you do a survey, right? Here, here's what's included in what you're buying. Here's all the trees, all, all the, the cave, the field, all of the things are sort of put out on paper. And so this transaction is completed before witnesses. And the Hebrew form here is literally, the deed rose and went over to Abraham. Actually, what it literally says. The deed rose and went over to Abraham. So ownership has passed from this Hittite to the Hebrew, legally and completely. The detailed contractual form demonstrates that Abraham had a complete legal claim to that field. That transaction was fairly done. Finally, it is recorded. Once this is complete, Abraham buries his, uh, his wife, Sarah, in, that, in the field of Mechpelah. The, the mention of Mamre and Canaan then forms an inclusio in the text. It's sort of like bracketing of the text in this account, which reflects the author's intention to demonstrate the fulfillment of the land promise. That's, that's probably what's going on here. The land which formerly belonged to the Hittites now was belonging to the the promised people, to to the covenant people. This is the land which was promised to Abraham and to his family. Now, you might wonder, why was this transaction important enough that it should be recorded in the Scriptures? Well, Abraham's purpose in purchasing the land and the cave was so that his family would have a permanent place to bury their dead. That's one part of this. Abraham himself too would, or I should say, Abraham himself would soon join Sarah. Right? He too will die and be buried in that cave, as would other members of the family. So Abraham was keenly aware that one day his family would inherit that land. Remember, right now, they're, they're sojourners. But now they own a little piece of that land. 
He knows that they're not going to just sojourn off into some other place, right? This is going to be where his family is going to be. And though he himself was going to sojourn, and some of his children were going to sojourn, he had confidence in the promises of God. That they would inherit this land, even, even as in his own life they did not possess it. Abraham's purchase then was an act of faith in the Lord. And we also could note that he acted in good faith toward the Hittite as he paid full price. And he he pays full price, again, because of his faith in the Lord. He knew that the Lord was taking care of him. The Lord who provides. And so he he purchases this land with full confidence in God's promises. He was to be buried. His wife was to be buried in the land which his offspring would one day occupy. Now keep in mind... From a human perspective, that's uncertain. It's uncertain that they're going to remain in that land. But it is a certainty because God said it would be the case. Even as he sought to purchase land too, he negotiated for the land in the most above-board way possible. Abraham secured a transaction which was unquestionable to all those who witnessed it. I think there's a number of lessons here for us. As well. First of all, the Christian should transact business in a way which is above reproach, ensuring it's a win-win situation. We should not seek to take advantage of others. When we seek to manipulate to get more than we should, we are showing that our trust is really not in the Lord. Trust might be in our own negotiating tactics. Consider also the fact that the transaction which purchased your freedom from sin did not take any shortcuts. The full price was paid for you in the blood of the Savior Jesus Christ. He was willing to give His life through His own death. Our trust, once again, is in the Lord who provides. Another lesson here is one of remembrance. Abraham desired to have a permanent place for his family to bury their dead so that they would remember God's promises and the faith of those who had gone before them as covenant members. So memorializing is an important part of our faith. But the Christian no longer looks to the sepulcher to remember our faith. We're not, we're not going to the graveyards to remember our faith. We go to God's covenant promises. We look to the signs and seals that He's given to us. We look to our baptism. We look at the Lord's Supper, both of which remind us of the work of our Savior, Jesus. We remember and believe. In our baptism, we're reminded of the washing and regeneration and renewal by Jesus. In the Supper, we remember and believe the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. That Christ died for sinners. That His body was given, His blood was shed. So that you and I may have eternal life. We remember and we believe. We're reminded of the good news of the gospel. The very thing that Abraham wanted his family to remember. In terms of their future hope. This place of burial was a reminder of Abraham's faith and Isaac's faith and Jacob's faith and all those believers who had a future hope, right? That they would inherit this land. Well, we too remember, don't we? But we remember, in some sense, both past and future, right? We're remembering what Christ has done 
But we're also looking forth with, with hope of the future which God has given to us in the new heavens and new earth. Remembering is important. Part of the Christian faith. We have a hope and an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for us in the heavenly places. Beloved Christian, our hope and our rest is found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one that we remember and we believe. We rest and trust in Him. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises. Even as uh, we think about what is perhaps a, a mundane real estate transaction, but the purposes of it that Abraham had a hope and that we too have a hope that we're looking forward to the fullness of our inheritance one day though we have only in part we live in that uh, already but not yet help us to rest and wait in faith we pray this in Jesus name Amen